Before we start the show, I want to thank the thousands of you, the thousands who have read This Book Will Make You Dangerous. Many of you have told me that the book's unique way of exploring fear, confidence, and purpose has had a lasting impact, that it's much easier for you to get clarity and direction about what really matters and what you want to do in this lifetime. It's also amazing to hear that quite a few of you have read it multiple times and even bought copies for friends, so thank you again. Just in case you weren't aware, I created a free companion video course for the book. And in these videos, I walk you through the big takeaways and practices from each chapter. And I even cover some extra stuff that's not included in the book. Information on how to access the course is in newer versions of the book. And if you own an older version of the book and you don't know how to access the course, just hit me up via the contact form at triplinear.com and we'll get you all set up. And one last thing, if you're one of the thousands who have already read the book, please consider leaving an honest review on Amazon so that others can decide if it's right for them. Again, thank you so much for reading. This book will make you dangerous. And now let's start the show. You are listening to the new man beyond the macho jerk and the new age wimp. Your host is men's coach, Trip Lemire. Do you worry that you're on the wrong path in life? Are you focused on goals and outcomes or doing what you actually enjoy? And what if there's more to life than chasing money or the need to be important? Before Doc G became a writer and host of the Earn and Invest podcast, he was like many doctors. But after years spent chasing outcomes, money, and building an ideal version of himself, he realized he was in a trap. Today, we discuss how he reinvented his personal and professional life based on what actually gave him a sense of aliveness and meaning. And we'll also dive into our fixation on money, safety, and why death can be a wonderful teacher. You know, one of the, one of the things that's, that stuck out for me on the, when you interviewed me on your podcast, the earn and invest podcast, what, um, you told a story about being recognized as a physician and and you basically said that it spoke to something that I had written about in my book. And I was curious if, do you remember that story? And could you (laughs) kind of tell us a little about that? (laughs) I went to, so, so there was a movie written about kind of what it's like to be a physician and someone of another physician in my, at the hospital I worked at sponsored to have it at one of the local movie theaters. And at some point after the director got up and said something to the extent of, you know, anyone who's a doctor, please stand up. And we all stood up and then she clapped and like the whole crowd started clapping. It was like 50% of the audience was doctors. And it was funny because it was the first time that I felt kind of that sense of honor in being a physician. And that was, it was double edged because on one side, it felt really, really good. But then on the other, it made me realize that I didn't feel that all the time. And so it was a very complicated moment for me. It made me realize, you know, it was part of that realization that I liked being a doctor but it didn't give me that innate pride that I always thought it would. In fact, maybe it only did at that moment, but Mm. I didn't carry around that good feeling all the time about being a doctor. Um, which is interesting because again, I work with the dying and you start really thinking about, 
okay, what's important in my life? What really feeds me and nurtures me? And that was one of those moments that I realized that that nurturing I thought I was going to get up being at a physician, that nurturing I felt for that one moment whenever it was clapping was very short lived. And that maybe this profession really wasn't providing me some of those good feelings that I thought it would for the rest of my life. And being a doctor, you know, I have friends that have become doctors and physicians and the, the path to that it's not a whim. It's not like, oh, I'll go get a certificate and then I'll try this out. It is such a long process. What were you, so what were you telling yourself as you were in that process? Like, yeah, this is going to be totally worthwhile. I mean, what was the carrot for you as you were becoming a doctor? So I, my father was a prominent oncologist, a really well-known doctor. He was very well-respected. And when I was seven years old, he died suddenly of a brain aneurysm. Hmm. And as most young kids do, I felt some way responsible. Like I felt like somehow I wasn't good enough. I wasn't lovable enough. If I had been more, maybe he wouldn't have died. And it was also the time that I really envied him. Like I wanted to be exactly like him. I wanted to pattern my life after his. So it was really natural to jump on this idea of I can become a doctor just like he was. In some sense, I think I almost thought I could fulfill a role that he left when he died. And somehow that could make me whole or somehow that could take away the tragedy of him dying. And so for me, it was never much of a conscious thought process. Like from the age of seven or eight, I was like, I'm going to be a doctor. That's it. And that's what I'm going to do with my life, which was interesting because at the time I also had a major learning disability. I had a horrible, horrible time learning how to read. So I imagine my mother was looking at me going, hey, we can't even kind of get you past the first, second grade curriculum. God knows if you are going to learn like everyone else, how much is this going to hold you back? And then I was this kid saying, I'm going to be a doctor like this is what I'm going to do with my life. There's no question. This is what I was meant to do. So I didn't question the hardships of medicine during training because it felt so innately like it was my identity. It was what I was supposed to do with my life that unraveled. And there are a few specific episodes during my training and later where I felt that connection to my father starting to fray. And I started questioning this whole idea. Is this really what I'm supposed to do with myself? So I've been telling myself this story since I was a little kid that my father died and I was supposed to walk in his footsteps And then there were these little things that happened to me that really profoundly made me question that. And it led to a real reckoning of my life. At the same time, I learned about finances. And so I had two big things happen at one time is one, I was coming to this reckoning of who I was and what my identity was and my connection to my father. And then the other portion was I was starting to look at my financial life and realizing, hey, I'm a lot better off than I thought I was. Well, how, how, what, what stage are we talking about? How old were you at this stage when you started? Oh, that re- was well into my 30s, early okay. 40s. So you did become a, a physician or you did become a doctor. And yeah, then and practiced for a good 20 years. You practiced, but in the, in the background, I was like, I'm fulfilling this vision, right? I think that's what we attach ourselves to. And we get these, even the, the folks that get the vision board, like, I'm going to put my head down and do this vision, but there's a, what's missing is this connection to our subjective experience. It's like, what do I really like? What actually has me feel alive? What actually has me feel expansive? And we, we dismiss that. No, 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 no. It's all about the vision. So I've got this identity. This is who I'm supposed to be. This is who I'm supposed to become. And you're, you're on that track and you're well into that. You have fully committed. You're both feet in. 
and then okay now now i'm just getting a sense of where your life is at this point but you had a couple of hiccups along the way that were like maybe i'm not supposed to maybe i'm supposed oh. somebody else you had a, you had a few knocks on the door there Oh, I had I had a few of them and they made me profoundly question what I was doing. And I did my best not to think about it. I did my best to ignore right those little whispers that tell you hmm, maybe you aren't really living your purpose and identity and maybe you're not really making those connections that are meaningful in your life. But to do that, I had to question this connection to my father I had. Right. I had to say my father died. I was seven. I've gone on this path to be closer to him. And there's these little whispers telling me that maybe that isn't who I am. And that was really hard. Like, that scary. was hard to. Yeah, it was, it was scary to let go of this childhood vision of my father that I so much wanted to still have in my life. And yet it wasn't fulfilling me. Right. I just <clears throat> this is what we see over and over again, especially, you know, it's really common in the people that I work with, which is like, hey, I've done well or I'm on this path to do well but something's off. Like I, I have this voice and is it just fear? I don't know if it's just fear. I don't know if it's just doubt. I don't know if it's just, you know, somebody else's stuff, but it's something's off. There's a rock in my shoe or there's a hole in my gut and something feels off. And it's like, well, I've already put this much time and energy in. I can't, if I quit now, what will people think of me? I mean, what was going on for you there? Was like, I'm going to betray my father if I, if I even entertain another path or what was the the big fear for you? I think there were two two major fears. One was certainly that there were these threads of connection to my father that I was horrified at the idea of losing. I think that was the first part. So being a doctor was the way that you kept your father in your alive, essentially, like you, you, you kept you honored your father by becoming a doctor. For sure. And then the other part was, as I started realizing there were other things that I loved to do, I loved to write, I loved public speaking, I really fell in love with this idea of communicating. But I always told myself, you can't really make a living doing that. So I had this fear of leaving this profession that I was good at, that provided a really stable living for me. To just walk away from that is very hard. You know, I always say that being a physician is one of the things that I'm best in the world at. How do you walk away from that when you realize that no matter how good you are at it, it isn't fulfilling you? I think that's such a big thing, too, is why I'm really good at this, so I should keep doing it, which is different than what actually has me feel alive. Like, what's the next thing? Like we kind of get stuck in performance, which is really what it is. I, how am I measuring up or how am I performing to the world instead of how does this actually have me feel? Right. What's what's the experience of doing this? And I think we also get caught up in this idea of purpose. Right. So being a doctor was really purposeful for me. But sometimes your purpose just doesn't have to be something so big or huge. I look back at some of the happiest times of my life. And one of the happiest times of my life was when I was like, you know, a 10 year old kid and I loved collecting baseball cards. And I remember spending years buying baseball cards and going through the packs and eating the gum. You remember the gum that used to come in the it's baseball wonderful card gum. Packs? Just the, it, was, it was just a step up from the cardboard backing in that. Yeah, it, yeah exactly. <laughs> and I'd be chewing on this horrendous gum. I'd have like 10 pieces in my mouth because I opened 10 <laughs> different packs. I'd be watching the Cubs who lost continuously throughout the 80s right. when I was that age. And I'd be sorting my baseball cards and I found so much purpose in life doing that. And as we get older, we start thinking that 
something that gives you purpose has to be important. It has to be big. It has to be helping the world or changing things. And I really got caught up in that, in being a doctor. And I kind of forgot, but what do I love? Like what makes me get up in the morning excited playing with baseball cards when I was a kid did. Now, of course, as an adult, your purpose is going to change. You're going to grow up. You're going to have different interests. But I lost some of that connection to doing things that really made me feel alive. And when I started realizing things like public speaking and writing made me feel alive, I kind of poo-pooed it. I said, well, yeah, but you can't make a living doing that. And I'm not particularly good at it, right? I'm I'm, I'm not nearly as good at that as resistance. being a physician. It's all resistance. And I, yeah. I can't change as many lives doing that as I will going to the office every day and treating people's maladies. And like you said, it, it was all resistance from keeping me from becoming what was probably more authentically who I wanted to be. I, this this issue, this issue, it is an issue. I, I see purpose as an issue for most folks. And it's this thing is like, well, if I just had my purpose, then everything would fall into place. And most of the time, this idea of purpose is really just an ego trip. Like it's, it's, where do I get to be important? Where, where will I finally be significant? Where will I finally be enough once and for all? And it's, and it's, it's a trap. It really is a trap because it's not tied to anything that actually has us feel more alive. And I always love what Joseph Campbell said was this, he, he, he always believed that our purpose of being alive is to feel alive, is to actually experience that. Not in a hedonistic kind of way where you're all gacked up on cocaine, and, you know, at a beach party somewhere. But I'm just talking about this sense of really being engaged in life and your head hits the pillow at night. And it's like, I'm really living my life. I'm doing this. And that can come from, you know, baseball cards or whatever. But, but most of the time we, we get fixated on this image of who we're supposed to be. And is that important enough? And then we forget, we, we push down this, anything that disputes or challenges this, this deep, deep desire for us to be enough or be alive. And so it sounds like from the early age, Hey, I know if I'm a doctor and I fulfill my dad's calling, then I'll finally be enough. I'll finally be, you know, whatever I'll be important. starts to, you start to really dig that groove in and it has us poo poo, anything that comes along that would challenge that and say, well, I can't go down that road. I won't be important. Um, and then we dismiss those, those know that inner knowing it's like, but I love to speak. I love to teach. I love to write. And it's like, no, 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 no. You got to go back to being important. Does that fit? It does. And I love how you say that. Like we start saying, how am I going to be enough? And as I get older, I realize that you can never really be enough. I think you can just be too little, like in a sense, Every time you think you hit that enough point, our human nature is to create a new goal and redefine what enough is. But you certainly can be the opposite. You can be too little, which is, I think, in some ways what I was doing. When I allowed myself to stick with being a doctor and making that my purpose and identity, I was being too little because it wasn't really speaking to my needs. Right. It's a it's a way that we can stay comfortable And, but it is where we play small. And I think that's the weird part is that we look, you know, we look at people and say, man, that guy's got it figured out when we see behind the veil. And it's like, he, he knows he's playing small. He knows he's holding back, even though he's got people kissing his ass and he's got an impressive bank account and all the other things he knows deep down that he's avoiding the thing that would actually have him feel more, more alive, more true to himself. And it's because of fear. It's like, I can't go in that direction. You know, it, it, 
I might, what, what will happen to my sense of comfort? What will happen to my sense of, of certainty? What's going to happen to my identity? No, no, no. I'm going to stick with this thing. This is where I've, I've established who I am and that I matter and we're not going to mess with it anymore. Yeah. And I think what you said makes a lot of sense too, is that ego really gets in the way of purpose. And, uh, if for me, purpose is what you would do if you had an abundance of free time, you had all your basics needs covered and you let go of your egotistical beliefs about what is good and right and just did what you wanted to do. I, the thing I want to point out here too, is that <clears throat> we're talking about baseball cards or we're talking about this other stuff. There's there, it takes courage to go down that road. This is what it feels dangerous to our egos to go down this road, to actually say, you know what, I'm going to pivot or I'm going to start to do a bit of this. I'm going to write, I'm going to teach, I'm going to, you know, start to branch out from this thing that feels safe and certain. It takes courage. It's we're going to go into uncertainty. It's not uh, the easy road. And I want to point that out because most of us are like, I can't just do what I want. I have to suffer. I have to, it's gotta be a pain in the ass. It's gotta be, you know, I know there's, there's, I know plenty of people that, that think that that's the key to life is how much they're suffering and they like to wear their suffering. Um, but really being able to pivot into the thing that we love is going to present us with this. Oh man, this is uncomfortable. I got to learn something or I got to work at it or I've got to, Hey, this might threaten my financial standings or, you know, definitely going to threaten my self image. You know, like you said, you were like, I'm going I'm to avoid that. But it really, this, this way that we're talking about is going to steer us into what feels dangerous and it's not the easy path, but it is the one that has us feel more fulfilling. But let me check in with you. I mean, was that the case for you when you started to pivot away from your medical practice and into other things? What was that process for you? So I got to this point in my career where these, I had hit these speed bumps. I had come to terms with having a decent amount of burnout. I even realized that I was struggling with this connection to my father and I was looking for a way out. I was looking for a way to redefine myself, to come back to who I am and what I want in the world. And someone sent me a book about personal finance. And I read this book in like two or three hours. And it helped me understand a bunch of economic principles, which I kind of knew, but I had never put together. I grew up in a family that was fairly financially savvy. So my parents taught me to do all these really smart financial things, but they never really gave me the vocabulary to understand how to look at your wealth, decide what you need, decide what is enough. So I got this book and I read it and I realized right at that moment that I had enough money to support myself and whether I worked or not probably didn't matter. Hmm. And that was like the most exciting and scariest moment of my life. And instead of having it, instead of being overjoyed, I actually fell somewhat into a depression for months. Okay. What's going on there? Why was it scary? Why was it depressing to oh, feel like, Oh, I, 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 I could retire. Yeah. I could, or what was because going on? then I had to face the fact that I had put up all these barriers. I had, made all these definitions of things that were goals that defined me and relieving myself of the monetary worries destroyed them all. So without needing to do it for money, they were, it was essentially a house of cards. If I'm not doing this for money, excuses. Yeah. I uh, had no more excuses. I had to look at my life and say, okay, I'm in my forties. 
I've defined my life up to this point in becoming a doctor. I've held on so tightly to this thread of who my father was and my connection to him. And I've been searching for a way out because it was no longer filling my soul. And I just found the way out. And oh, my God, who am I? What am I going to do with my life? What has meaning? If I'm not a doctor, what's my importance in this world? Like I had a wife and kids and things that really made me feel good. Don't get me wrong. I have strong family and friends. But I think we all strive for something a little more deep and a little more internal that's not defined by other people. So I had to come to terms with this fact that maybe I'd hoodwinked myself a little bit in who I really was and what my purpose was. And I hadn't forged more meaningful aspects of myself. I hadn't built and created things that were more unique and that I identified more with. And so then I had to deal with that. Mm. And so it was scary and painful and I struggled I really struggled with this idea of I'm walking away from the identity that I've held so tight to my bosom for the last 40 years. Who am I going to be now? Right. Right. I've, I've seen this in multiple ways. I appreciate you being honest about it because most guys hide this part. They, they don't, they don't want to reveal that once they kind of slay that dragon, that first dragon in their life, as if there's just one dragon, you know, or there's one <laughs> hill or whatever, they, if they identify with that. I've talked to guys that have sold millions of books or that have, you know, created some kind of wealth for themselves or done an ABC, something similar to you. And then when they reach that, it's this kind of free fall. It's like, well, who am I? What am I supposed to do now? And meanwhile, everybody's like, wow, I'd love to be you. I would love to be in your situation. And there's this hollowness of like, I don't think you would because I'm lost now. And I appreciate you being willing to own that because there's so many people like, really, you're going to, you're going to pull this shit that you're lost (laughs) in free falling. And there's so many people that are just struggling, you know, two, three jobs and struggling to get by. And and now we're going to feel sorry for you. So I I can appreciate both. I can appreciate that there are both in this world that, that we can find uh, ourselves in that, in that place. Uh, uh, It's a, it's great that you're owning that and bringing that forward because most of us are just denying that we I know guys that are staying in careers that are well past their due date, relationships well past their due date, whatever those things are, because they're so, it's about identity. It's not really about why they're, you know, what they do it for anymore. Yeah. I mean, I only know my reality, so I can't be authentic and talk about what it's like to struggle in three or four jobs. I can't. I can't live that life. So I can't then compare it to my life and say, oh, I've got it easy. Don't complain. All I know is that kind of reality that's been created around me. It is a privilege to be at a place where I have enough money and enough time and enough ability to think about these issues. Mm -hmm. But I also think that, you know, it's... I don't know if we can also blame people for questioning their lives, regardless of how successful we think they are, because we don't really live in their brains. Right. Right. We don't know what they struggle with. And this process of trying to figure out who you are 
and what you're supposed to do in this world is a process that almost everyone faces, regardless of economic class, regardless of where you are, you know, on Maslow's pyramid, right? right? Whether you're at the way bottom base and you're just trying to figure out your basic needs or whether you're all the way up at the top at self-actualization, this is a struggle we all face. And it's actually a struggle that brings us together as opposed to splits us apart. Hmm. Uh, the situation may be different. The specifics may be different, but I think we're all struggling with those same issues. It's all, it's all human. And I think, I think what you're pointing to is that we tend to look at another person's life and we see that they, we imagine... Here's the, here's the, we assume that that person doesn't deal with this, the main struggle that we're dealing with. And so that we, then we say, well, if I was, if I was that person and I wasn't struggling with this specific thing, I'd feel free. I'd have peace of mind. I'd be set, but we don't know what it's like to actually crawl in between those ears and then realize there's another set of challenges that that person is dealing with. But I think this is part of the system that we get into where we have a theory well, if I just had a, that amount of money, I just lived in that neighborhood. I just had this status. I just had this. I, I was, I finally fulfilled my dad's calling, like whatever, then I'd be set. There's the, that's the theory. That's the thing that I would finally, that would ha finally have me feel enough. It would finally bring lasting peace of mind. I'd finally feel, you know, this sense of aliveness once and for all. We, we, we don't realize that we create a theory between that objective outcome and this internal experience that we're really seeking. And so it's easy to look at that guy and be like, he's set, man, if I was him, I'd be great. But we, like you said, we don't really know what that subjective experience is like to be that person. And everybody's carrying around their own stuff. Everybody's got their own road to hoe. So I, uh, you know, and some are better than others. I'm not going to say it's flat, obviously, but I, I love to poke holes in this idea that boy, I'd be set. If I was just that guy, I'd be free from, X, Y, Z. I wouldn't have any other worries for the rest of my life. Yeah. And, and again, I think it comes back to this idea there there really is no such thing as enough. <laughs> so it's really hard to get to this feeling of enough or I'll finally be there because most of the time we're really good at realizing when we feel like there's too little, but we're not really good at understanding enough very well. So let's come back to that. So you have this awakening. It really is an awakening. Oh my gosh. Right. Like I've got enough, but I'm also what do I do now? So what did you do now? I mean, did you do, did you hide from that or, or did you, did you lean into it? So the first thing I did is I looked at the identity that I had already created and tried to decide if there were parts of it that still fit or not. So I was a practicing physician. I was working tons of hours. I had my own practice. I was seeing patients in the hospital. I was running to the nursing home. I was answering phone calls 24 seven. I was a workaholic. So the first thing I did is I said, well, is there anything that's part of this identity that I really still attach to and feel connected to? Because I don't feel like you have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so I started subtracting the things about my job that I just didn't like. So the first thing I did is I got rid of my office practice. It was taking up huge amounts of time. I was stuck in the office from nine to five. You know what doctor's offices are like. There's no windows. It's dark. There's the artificial lighting. It was horrible. So I got rid of that. And I did that for a while. And then I realized, you know what? The nursing homes are stressing me out because I was working at nursing homes and I was getting phone calls at three in the morning. And I said, I don't want to get phone calls at three in the morning anymore. I have enough money. Let's get rid of that. I started peeling things away. What I was left with is I had been working as a medical director part time as a hospice at a hospice. And I love that work. And I said, well, if I didn't need the money. And if I wasn't getting paid, 
would doing this job still add to my life and my purpose and my identity? Would it still help me feel a better sense of who I am? And the answer was yes. So I said, I'm keeping that. And so I was doing that about 12 to 15 hours a week in addition to all the other things I was doing. And I slowly got rid of all the other things I was doing Mm -hmm. and kept that one piece of me because I found real meaning and joy in doing it. So that was part of the process. The other part of the process was then starting to delve into, well, what am I outside of medicine? And I had been interested in personal finance. I had been reading up on it. So I started writing every day. In this case, I actually started a blog about personal finance, about money, and what this realization of realizing I had enough money meant to my life. And so I wrote a blog post a day for more than a year just philosophically putting down on paper every day what I was thinking about it and how it related to where I was in life and what my plans were going to be for the future. And this became my accountability diary to myself where I worked through these issues. This is where I decided that I had to start subtracting away all those things that I didn't like about medicine. This is where I decided that I loved public speaking and I loved telling stories and I needed to pursue that further. This is the place where I made the connections to the people who convinced me that, you know what, you love to tell stories and talk. You should start a podcast. So I did two things. I got rid of what I didn't like in my life. I held on to what I did, and then I started exploring something that I had always been interested in, but always been too afraid, which was writing and public speaking and communicating. I said, well, I don't need to make money at it. I don't even need to be good at it, but I need to enjoy the process. And if I can do that, then I'm getting closer to figuring out who I actually am and what this new sense of identity needs to be. All right. So this is the part in the story where it's easy to look in the rearview mirror and I'm like, I just did this stuff. And I know as I coach people to, to get into this stuff, there's a lot of resistance. There's this, I can't press publish on this. And it's like, you know, just pressing publish on that first post or that first podcast or whatever that thing is. There's a lot that can come up in there. Like, I'm going to suck. I'm, I'm really good at this thing over here. And I'm terrible at this thing. And I know I'm terrible at it. So why would I press publish? Why would I present this to the world? So did you have any of that? Did you have any of that, that doubt and that it, what felt like trepidation or what was going on for you as you started to move into this new vein of, of, you know, figuring out who you were, but you were doing a, a, a part of this in public. So what was that? What was the experience of that like for you? So I can give you a perfect example. I started writing about personal finance and became part of the financial independence community. And through that, I met all these people who I really looked up to, right? These people who are doing amazing things. They had amazing blogs or podcasts or YouTube channels. They were really impressive to me. They were living their life the way I wanted to. And I started a podcast. And my first episode of the podcast, I had three of these people who I really highly respected on. We were doing a panel episode because my podcast really started as panels where we discussed issues. And so I had three of these what I thought were amazingly impressive people on and we're getting ready to go, you know, checking your mic, making sure everything's ready, about to hit record. And I had this moment where I almost lost it, not lost it in the sense that I had to step away, but 
I kind of said, I could really make a huge fool of myself right now. Mm. I'm in front of all these impressive people. I'm about to do this big thing that I have no experience doing. And I could be the biggest fool ever and just look silly to them, look silly to the world. And it was like one second. And then I thought about everything else in life and I was kind of like, you know what? You just got to do it. Like, like I came to the point that I was never, ever going to get anything I wanted or that felt good if I refused to try. If I didn't fall on my face once or twice or three times, I was never going to succeed. And so, like, I threw myself into it and I, I it was that moment of fear and anxiety and maybe it was because I was in my 40s or maybe it was because I had been walking into the rooms of dying people and been the last voice to bring reason or make medical decisions that would forever change people's lives. So I was used to doing some difficult things. But it was the moment of overcoming that resistance that you're talking about. Yeah. And I think something just broke. It just said, you know what? You got to do this. This is where you are. And you either can go forward in life and take some chances, or you can go back to who you were, which was good enough, but didn't really, it wasn't fulfilling my needs to such an extent that it forced me to change. Mm. So when life keeps trying to force you to change, you can keep fighting it or you can just jump in. And so at that moment I jumped in and I think it's a good metaphor for what I had to do in lots of other things is at some point I had to get up on a stage and start talking, knowing full well that I could stutter and sputter and be horrible. But what else are you going to do? Like I've spent so much time with people who are dying and almost none of them will say, I regret the time I tried something that I really wanted to do and failed. They almost always say, I regret the time that I had this thing that was so important and I never tried. Mm. I, I want so to come back to that. That was one of the things I wanted yeah. to talk to with you about. But I, I also want to just point out that I see this, especially in maybe in younger folks, which is this, I want to find the hack. I want to find the secret sauce. I want to find the trick. And in their mind, if I can find the hack or I can find the trick, I can somehow get the cheat code where I don't have to go into anything that feels vulnerable uncomfortable, uncertain. I don't have to do anything that has me that might potentially have me look like a moron. I can just find this perfect thing and then I can go execute it. And that, that seems like the hack. And I want to point out that that doesn't exist. And so even as somebody in your forties at the time, right, that you're pointing out that here I am again, and I'm in this place where I could fall flat on my face, whether it matters or not, it's going to matter to you. Right. Um, but I think that's, it's, it's the hack is, not trying to avoid that it's being willing to steer directly into it and to actually move quickly you know one of my coaches phil stutz says speed is a force like you just bang just if we're going in this direction then we go foot down bring it on here we go and i just love that you're speaking to that instead of wait a second if i'm uncomfortable or there's uncertainty or i could look like a moron i need to press the brakes here something's wrong i must be doing this wrong which is no like no no we're gonna expect that and i love that that didn't slow you down necessarily it was or throw you off because i think most of us have have when we talk about purpose they've made avoiding 
discomfort, made avoiding uncertainty, made avoiding any kind of vulnerability, the purpose of their lives. You look at what they do on a day-to-day basis. It's to avoid that stuff at all costs. And, and what you're talking about here is, no, I expect this to come up. Of course, it's going to come up. And I've dealt with worse. I've, I've, I've watched people on their deathbed so many times. I'm going to take this perspective into, into what has me feel alive. One thing that I've learned, which has taken many years to really swallow, right, to really accept it, is that when you step into the breach and you allow yourself to be authentically vulnerable, not pretend, but authentically vulnerable, you almost always benefit. Like it almost always turns out okay in the end. Maybe not immediately. Maybe they're uncomfortable moments. Maybe the turn of events goes in a direction you didn't think it would. But it's hard to ever think of times where that didn't eventually lead to something better in the end. Do you have an, an example? I can imagine I can I'm shake. I'm nodding my head because I'm aware of that. But is there is there something that you could point to in your own life? Because, again, many of us are in this. I mean, protect, protect, protect. I mean, our whole life is set up as defense, as survive. And you're saying, actually, if you're willing to be vulnerable, that's where all the good stuff is. I mean, it, it works out. It works out in our favor. So I'm imagining, you know, furring my brow as I listen to that, like, hmm, I don't know. I mean, can you pull it? Can you think of an example? Yeah, I'll give you an example happening right now in my life. I have been in the in love with the idea of traditionally publishing a book for years about a number of things, my medical experiences, my financial experiences. And I copped out so often. There were so many times I copped out in very reasonable ways. Like one way I copped out was I wrote two books and self-published because I was too afraid to go down traditional publishing to actually get an agent to go to a traditional publisher and to put myself out there. I knew if I, if I self-published, no one could tell me it wasn't good enough. It would be out there in the world. And that was that. And recently I decided that I was just going to go for it. I had a friend who said, you know, you and I have been talking about these issues for so long. He had published a number of books and had been very successful. He's like, you really need to go for this. You need to take this and go for it. And instead of poo-pooing it or instead of saying, no, I've already done that or that won't add to my life or I don't need the stress, I said, this is a moment where this person who has this defined skill set and knowledge is coming to me and saying, I'm going to help you do something you've always secretly wanted to do but been too afraid to do. How can I pass that up? Mm. So instead of pushing away, instead of fearing, because it was a big vulnerability, what if I did listen to him, did all these things and it blew up in my face? What if I finally got that affirmation I was so afraid of that I wasn't good enough, that this wasn't meant for me? But instead I said, okay, let's jump into this. So he helped me write a book proposal. And then I shot that book proposal to a number of agents and that was uncomfortable. And I had to figure out how to send to these people and who to send to. And some of them didn't get back to me. Some of them weren't interested. I had to face my failure each and every time, but one was interested. 
And then I sent her all this information. I actually spent a few weeks putting all my thoughts down together. And she looked at it and she said, this is really great, but it's not where it needs to be. And then I had to come back to this whole like facing my fear. Oh, my God, I came all this way. I got an agent. I'm finally going where I need to go. And she said, you know what? I think we need to hire an editor and a book coach. And I think we need to take what you have here and put it together in a more appealing way. And at each step, I had to take my expectations and my hopes. And instead of sticking with those, I've had to embrace what is. And that's something I've been really trying to do in my life lately is stop trying to expect or hope for something that isn't. Instead, try to take what's in front of you, embrace it, and then go from there. So this is how it is instead of, but it's supposed to be this way or it should be that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and to embrace it and to say, OK, I feel vulnerable. This is going in a direction that's different than I had hoped or planned. But if I embrace that, if I take my agent and now my editor book coach and I make them part of my team and I form these bonds with them and we work together and we create something wonderful or beautiful all that vulnerability will have been worthwhile. And let's say I don't create something wonderful or beautiful. Let's say we put that finish off that book proposal. We go to the publishers and they don't like it Mm. or it quote unquote fails. Look at the amazing experience I had by meeting these people who've become part of my team, who I forged these bonds with. And look at all I've learned about how to get to this place that I had been putting off for so long because I was so afraid that I would fail I can't think of any bad outcome here. Mm. Book gets published. Awesome. That was the greatest thing. I I went past one of my fears. I'm able to get my words out there. Wonderful. Book doesn't get published. I met these amazing people. I understand the process. I worked with a book coach who took my ideas and really put it together in a way that's much more salient than it was before. I just, I don't see any downside, but I couldn't see that before. I had to throw myself into it. I had to become vulnerable. I had to accept my own shortcomings. I had to embrace what is instead of what I want to be mm-hmm. to get to this good place. It's much different than I'll only do it if, you know, all these boxes are checked. And I think a lot of us are playing that we're bargaining, right? I, I'll, I'll even, I won't even allow myself to want it unless... I can see where it's going to be completely safe. Right. And sure. Most people are like, I don't even want that thing. And, and then it's one thing to be like, I want that. And it's a high likelihood that it won't work out or it's going to be really uncomfortable or a lot of work. And you're saying, let's go, let's go. There's what's the downside here to, to going down this road. I mean, to me, like that is a truly strong perspective, which is the other one is like, I only go for things and if it's going to work out. I mean, look at how we mangle our goals to try to fit our expectations. And I go back to the story of me and becoming a doctor and my father. I mean, when you come down to it, my story is just a little kid who wanted to feel loved and accepted and worthy of his father who died when he was young. And I took all of that and mangled it into this identity, which wasn't bad. Being a doctor was wonderful in a lot of ways. But I kept on trying to force myself into the easy path, Mm. right? The path that felt good for the short term, but not for the long term. And I think we do it with things big and small. We keep on trying to twist and turn and bend 
contort reality yeah. to our fears as opposed to facing our fears and then accepting reality for what it is and maneuvering within it. Mm. So I want to come back to, to your relationship with death because this whole conversation, I, I can't imagine us having a conversation without really discussing this. It's one of the things that I talked about in my book, which is let's practice dying. I actually lead the reader through it, through that practice. Because for me, when I forget that I'm going to die one day, I think I can just continue to bargain and bullshit myself and kick the can down the road as if I'll get around to it. But when we understand that our mortality is for real, for real, for real, um, it wakes us up. I find it enlivening. It's like, okay, uh, you know, TikTok. let's, let's use this. Let's use our mortality as a way to really cut through what doesn't matter and, and get to the heart of what does. So, how has, just give us, for those of us that don't understand what a hospice is, you've talked about how that has been something that you've chosen to keep into your life. So just briefly, what, what is hospice and then what is your role in, in, in working there? So hospice is the care of patients who are expected to live six months or less. So the idea is when people develop terminal illnesses, whether that be Alzheimer's dementia or metastatic breast cancer or congestive heart failure. And we say we're at this point where our medical treatments are only going to prolong life so much. We try to focus much more on comfort and making those moments that are left as high quality as possible, as opposed to increasing the number of those moments, right? So if you think about traditional medicine, what we're really trying to do is prolong life as, as far as we can. But when we get to hospice, we're saying life is limited. We accept that. Let's say that today we're here and you're going to die at some point in the future, and we're no longer going to try to make that more or less time. We're just going to focus on that amount of time that's there and make it as wonderful as possible. And so it has to do with managing people's symptoms and pain, but it also, part of our job is to help people with life review, to look at their lives and come to terms with who they've been and who they are, to create the best environment for them to connect to their family and loved ones, to help them die where they want to be, whether that's in their own home or in a hospital or a nursing home. The goal is to help people die. We used to say die well, and I don't know if that's a great way of saying it because some people will never die well. This idea of dying will never fit well with them or, you know, people tend to die sometimes the way they live. So, if they live these chaotic lives, they sometimes die these chaotic deaths. But try to help them die with peace and comfort. And so my role is that I direct teams of nurses, chaplains, social workers, certified nursing assistants, occupational therapists, pretty much a whole group of people that their whole job is to visit these patients and to take care of them. And that care has everything to do from managing their medicines to connecting them to family members, to dealing with their spiritual needs, to pretty much anything that we can supply to make that amount of time, regardless of how much it is, better. To help people feel like they're living until the moment they die 
instead of in this dying process for months on end. So I'm imagining what it's like to, to come up against the realization that, oh, I'm going to die, right? Like I'm not going to, this disease has got me, right? This is, this is going to happen. And, you know, just the scope of that, like, you know, the Buddhists say that our, that a big part of our practice is to practice dying over and over and over again, this letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go into the uncertainty. And, and so I imagine just having that as a frame that on a regular basis, being in that environment, being in that discussion of, we are going to accept the inevitability of death and we're going to accept it, that it's going to be in this rather short time frame. Um, how has that, are you aware of how that's impacted you? Are you, are you aware of, I'm trying to imagine how much death that you are experiencing or being around on a, on a regular basis. You were very, you offered to support me and my family as we just recently lost a close loved one. So, um, just, I'm just trying to imagine how this is impacting how you view living as you are so close to death. Let me tell you two contradictory thoughts that continuously play out in my mind. One is that death is a period at the end of a sentence. And what I mean by that is it's not a parentheses or quotation marks. Like you are alive until the moment you die. And I think that's important because I think what that means is that we have to make the most of those moments as opposed to worrying about dying. On the other hand, that contradicts something that I also hold very true, which is we are dying from the moment we are born. And so I'm constantly playing off those two different thoughts. Like we are continuously feeling loss in life, whether it's relationships, whether it's jobs, whether it's my knees don't work the way they used to, so I can't run the 10 miles I did when I was in my 20s. We are constantly facing loss. And so you can fight that loss. You can try to prevent it from happening. You can deny it. Or you can do what I was talking about before, which is accept life as it is. It is happening. And there is a beauty in losing as well as a pain in it, right? Every time we lose something and think back and say, boy, I could run 10 miles in my 20s and I can't in my 30s. You're celebrating what you could do before as well as letting go of it and moving towards that next thing. So I think it's really important for us to be aware of loss and be aware of the fact that we are gaining and losing things all the time in life because how else are we going to feel that urgency of now? How else are we going to embrace what's happening to us at this moment? Because we know life is fluid and it can come and go as quickly as our thoughts can. So I think it's really important to realize that we're dying a little bit all the time because it helps us really enjoy where we are and embrace it. On the other hand, I think you can't spend all your time worrying about dying. I have been with hundreds of people and families as their family members have died. And dying is generally a fairly peaceful, straightforward thing. Like before I did this, I was afraid of this concept of dying. I don't worry about my own death anymore at all. Because I found it to be a rather peaceful thing. I think we have to stop worrying about that final end and live our lives. The actual dying part. I think I, what did Woody Allen say is I, I'm not afraid of death. I'm afraid of the dying part. Or <laughs> The actual dying part to me, most of the time, I found it to be fairly peaceful. Not always. But the grand majority of the time, people slip away with family and friends around. And that's that. 
And it's mm. not a scary thing. It's a very, very natural thing. Mm. So I'm continuously working against those two ideas. Like death is a period at the end of a sentence. Stop worrying about it continuously. It is what it is and it'll happen when it happens. On the other hand, keep in mind that we're dying a little bit all the time and that we need to embrace the comings and goings of our lives. And there's a beauty in it. And part of that beauty is that we can be in the here and now and accept it for what it is and, and understand some of that urgency of doing things now, of enjoying what's happening in our life now, of holding tightly onto those relationships, because they're going to continuously change. Some are going to come, some are going to go, some are going to expand, some are going to contract, and we probably can't do much about it. Yeah. It is a paradox, right? We're, we're going to die so let's not freak out about dying. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, it, it's this, like, how do you find that place where it invigorates us to live fully, to not, you know, bullshit ourselves on some path that is going to drain us and have us be less alive, but at the same time, not live in this constant state of fear, anxiety, and, you know, cause that robs us of our life as well. So it's like, how do we hold both? You don't live in denial, but you also don't live in complete, you know, contraction, around it as well. Um, I, I'm curious, uh, you, you've said you've, you've, you've been around so many folks as they've passed on. What, um, how does their spirituality affect their outlook of, of their experience? I, I'm curious, like, how does their worldview, is there any difference uh, as they kind of translate their dying experience through their spiritual belief system? You know, I think people tend, like I said, to die the way they generally lived. So spiritual people tend to look at end of life in very spiritual means and non-spiritual people tend not to. Certainly when you have a finite time period placed on your life, uh, it makes you think about the deeper things. And I think that's that big, important part of what we call life review is if people are lucky and have the time and energy and wherewithal, they can take some time to really look at their lives and contemplate what was important, what wasn't important, where did they succeed, where did they fail, what could they have done better, and what did they do just right? And spirituality plays a role in that. Mm. I mean, people question what spirituality meant in their life. Some cling to it much more tightly as they get closer and closer to death. And others let it go. And it, it's really an individual thing. And, and a lot of it has to deal with how you how you put together the story of your life in those last moments. One of the things that I, I try to keep an eye on is this part is like, I don't want to die with regret. I don't want to be on my deathbed and, and sitting there regretting and kind of turning the blade on myself because I didn't live fully. And I've got to, I want to keep an eye on that because I can get into this it's part of the contraction piece, which is I don't want to live those last few months or those last few minutes or those last few seconds in regret. And so I will spend my whole life kind of driving myself nuts. So I don't have to experience that later. Um, do you, do you see what, what do people regret? What do you notice when people are on their deathbed? You say it's largely peaceful. So, but are there regrets? I mean, can you speak to that? I think regret actually is natural. And, and maybe I would say the exact opposite. Stop worrying about regret we're always going to regret things, right? Because things will not work out perfectly in our lives. I think the kind of regret that really burns is we regret not trying. 
<laughs> right? And that that can deal with both people and things, right? We regret when we let relationships fall to the wayside and we never tried to repair them when we should have. We regret when we had this great want or need and we were too afraid to try. So I don't think regret is bad. I regret all sorts of things in my life even now, and that's okay. I mean, I don't have perfect control. Sometimes things don't go the way you want them to. Um, but there are also things we can control, especially now as we are people who are not dying, looking forward to that point when we will be actively on our dying bed. We can kind of say, okay, these are some really important things in my life that are goals or wishes or, you know, people love to say bucket list, whatever you want to call it. I don't think the regret is not achieving those things. I think the regret is not trying. And so you and I probably can't control whether we really achieve all of our goals or dreams because some of them will be out of our reach. In fact, I often tell my children, may you never reach your dreams completely. And part of the reason is, is I think part of being alive is striving for something that's just out of reach. That's a good thing. So I don't think you have to reach your goals. And if you do, maybe you didn't have enough goals. I think what you need to do is try. And so if you put yourself out there, if you're willing to be vulnerable to come back to our other conversation, if you're willing to put yourself in the breach, I think that's when you sit on your deathbed and say, I gave it my best and I'm at peace. It's the people who didn't try who really feel kind of like, I wish I had been more myself. I wish I had concreted those relationships that had fallen away. I wish I had been less afraid to try the things that scared me. Mm. I love that. I love that. And I think that, uh, yeah, never, I, I think we can fixate on those outcomes, right? That the outcome is going to be the thing that finally gives me that peace of mind. But what you're saying is it's just the willingness to engage it. That's, yeah. that's the enough that we find the peace of mind is like, I gave it a shot. I leaned in, I didn't hold back. I didn't wait. And so I'm thinking of those guys out there that are listening right now. And it's like, where are you holding back? Where are you waiting? And recognizing that the doorway to this peace of mind, this lasting peace of mind is knowing, and I've seen this over and over again. It's just this, I'm finally doing something about this. I'm no longer waiting. There's this, the whole nervous system calms down. It's not once I accomplish this, I'll finally feel aligned and free. It's this, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm on this path. I'm not kicking the can down the road. Ah, there's this big exhale and it just feels like I'm finally aligned. I'm finally honoring myself. I'm honoring my life. And I, I think about that. I think about, you know, being able to watch my father do things in life, watch wanting my daughter to watch me do things in life. It's way more. I think about that far more than the, the, the honors or the accolades or the, Hey, you, you crossed the line. It was always like, wow, watch, watch him go. And he's leaning in. And that was always more inspiring to me. Um, and it is, it's more inspiring me to me to be around people that are in that process and trying things. Uh, that's where the art is. I, I find that that's where the juicy stuff is. I spent the first few decades of my life concentrating on product outcomes. I can't tell you how freeing it is now at this place I am in life to dive into process. And again, that moment that I was starting the podcast and I felt that catch in my throat and I knew I could fall on my face. 
you know, it's really comforting to realize that being there in that moment with those people I highly respected, having the opportunity to have an amazing conversation, that process, that being there would far dwarf whatever product came from it. And that's something that I've really, really tried to look at differently, especially in this kind of post-medicine life where I'm going more for purpose and identity and trying to figure out what my real connections are to people in the world. It's like, how can I be in the process? How can I live in that space? Because to me, that space has become the sweet spot. It's where we experience the flow. It's where I, I don't experience the, that sense of, uh, these moments of this is why I'm alive. This is why I'm on the planet. That doesn't happen when it's done. It's, it's, I get those moments when it's, when I'm in it, when my, my, you know, I've got my sleeves rolled up and I'm doing that thing. I'm having this kind of conversation. I'm having it right now. It's like, yes, this is why I do this. This is why is to have these types of conversations and to share them with others. So it's like, it's never like, okay, once this goes out and then X thousands of people listen, it's like, no, that wasn't it. It was, you know, that's great. That's nice. But it's always in the moment of doing that thing. And I think that the shift and we're back to where we started this conversation is looking at where we can fixate on this image or this outcome and then, but shifting back our awareness or developing this awareness, like, where do I feel more alive? Where's that process? What processes, when I lean into them, do I get that expansive feeling? And then having the courage to lean in, to do that more and more and more. And we might find that that's where we get what we're ultimately seeking, right? That freedom, that aliveness, that love, that deep peace of mind. Uh, it opens the door for those a lot more than when we fixate on, Hey, I just got to spend 20 years doing ABC and then, or 30 years and I'll finally be set. Uh, I can finally forget it. I can go into autopilot. So, um, doc, I'm just appreciating this conversation. Um, uh, you know, I'm appreciating you and appreciating the wisdom. Uh, there's so many things that we could talk about. I didn't even get into the financial independence stuff today. Maybe we'll have to do that at another time, but uh, I love being able to go deep with you and, and uh, feel your sense of humor and, and just uh, yeah. Glad you're you. And I'm glad you're bringing that to the world. Yeah. I, I just, I feel it's an amazing privilege to be at this point in life where I can spend my day having these type of conversations. So if these interviews are helping you, please leave a positive review on whatever podcast app you use so that others can discover the show more easily.